Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory. If you haven't already subscribed, please catch us wherever you love to listen to your podcast, from the Relevant Radio app to Apple, YouTube, you name it, we are there. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please be sure to go and give us a five-star review to help other people discover the podcast. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Welcome, welcome to our weekly Gentleman's Hour here on Trending. If you have a question for my guest today, always taking your questions from a Catholic perspective, Hugh Brown, the executive director or executive vice president of American Life League, is joining me doing incredible pro-life work. We'll unpack today on Wednesday, the day of St. Joseph. Uh, each day or each Wednesday, right smack in the middle of the week, we focus on St. Joseph. We'll talk about him in light of his corporate works of mercy, you know, looking at the fact that he took Our Lady in, you know, he took the child Jesus in, and the role of men in taking on that responsibility in our culture for others. We're also going to talk about the front lines of battling the increase in abortion in pro-abortion states and how abortion clinics, some in pro-abortion states that border uh, states with restricted access to abortion, that is a win for us, pro-life laws, and where access decreases more people choose life, but some people do choose to seek out abortion, and Planned Parenthood is working overtime to give increased access to abortion, bordering those areas where abortion, praise the Lord, is less accessible than ever before due to Supreme Court decision allowing for the option of abortion to be determined, the legality of it, state by state. We're in a whole new battle on the abortion front battling individual states and state laws, and we have a lot of work ahead of us. So we'll be talking about the latest happening in Planned Parenthood's new work, groundbreaking work for Planned Parenthood, which we are ready to respond to. I'm also going to talk about really fascinating conversation I had this past week uh, with kind of some Gen Z and young millennials who are really, really struggling with the fact that they have to work that they're tired when they have a full-time job, that they don't have a lot of time for other things. It's a really fascinating conversation. It reminded me of a, a video that was recently sent to me of a Dr. Phil episode where this Gen Z teenager starts weeping when her mom and Dr. Phil are saying that she needs to get a job. Uh, it's interesting. She doesn't want to work. She doesn't want to be tired. <laughs> uh, what's the perspective on that? What do you think about the modern-day work ethic? And we'll also talk about keeping our side in heaven and why Christmas is a foretaste of that in the day days to come. You're listening to Trending with Timory. Joining me now is Hugh Brown, the Executive Vice President of American Life League. You can find them at all.org and their great work. He's also a high school football coach there in Virginia. And I want to talk today, Hugh, about St. Joseph and the significant role of St. Joseph in his fatherhood and the example he sets in the corporate works of mercy for us as well. Timory, that's the, thank you for having me. That is a, a great uh, example for all of us. I mentioned uh, when you and I spoke earlier that my brother-in-law is a, a man who met my sister when she was in her 20s, and he was a little bit older. 
and he's from a family of 13. He was the oldest. My, my sister was a single mom and they were in love. And he, he was very matter of fact, uh, you know, I remember talking about, you know, did he want to propose? Did he want to get married? He had a little bit of, we'd have to ask him. He may say, nah, maybe that wasn't exactly the case, but a little bit of fear about maybe, you know, um, uh, uh, marrying and having uh, someone who had um, a young child already. And I remember him saying specifically that he prayed uh, religiously uh, to St. Joseph, that he turned to St. Joseph quite often because St. Joseph is the example of someone who, in taking Mary you know, as his bride, um, had to have complete faith that what the angels were telling him was true and that he, you know, I think Scripture even says before the angels even uh, came to him, he had a heart where he didn't want to embarrass her. He didn't want to put her to shame mm-hmm. or scorn. Uh, because in those days they would have stoned her to death. Right. And now here we are in 2022 at Christmas time, and my uh, sister and brother-in-law have eight children. They've got uh, uh, five, six, I think, in, in heaven because she's had miscarriages. Um, and they're just an example of a holy, fl- a holy family. Um, I also mentioned their youngest son, Will, who's two, Iron Will, has Down syndrome, and he is just the light of life. I mean, he, as my brother-in-law said, the creator sent Will to the perfect family. He knew exactly what he was doing. And so my brother-in-law to me is a great example of the intercession of St. Joseph of living as I would imagine St. Joseph would have lived in 2022, uh, just giving selflessly of himself to his wife and his eight children um, and pouring himself into their faith. They homeschool all their kids. Uh, my, uh, uh, My youngest son is at Ave Maria. He's getting to know one of his cousins now who's also at Ave Maria one of my sister's sons, which I think is very cool. The Holy Spirit clearly isn't uh, is, is in work there because they're half a country apart. And we'd see each other in the summers occasionally, but they really didn't know each other. So it's just great to see how the Holy Spirit works in Catholic families. And as you and I have discussed before, we're not perfect, right? There's lots of, lots of stuff we got to deal with. The world is just, you know, creeping in everywhere. And sometimes it feels like you're on an island that's shrinking. But you know what? We have the Holy Spirit, and we have faith, and we just work, and we know that God is faithful, and we just keep working and believe. And some, someone said to me recently that the—this uh, was yesterday. They said that the ch- Catholic Church has never been worse. Things have never been worse because they were upset with some things that are happening and, and Pope Francis and all these other things and what this next synod might do and things coming out of the Pontifical Academy for Life that are clearly not of the Church. And I told him, actually, it's the best time to be a Catholic. What a great time to be a Catholic. With all that happening, whether it was the time of Catherine of Siena, whether it was when we, we were blessed in my lifetime to have you know, Pope John Paul, St. Pope John Paul, or mm-hmm. Francis of Assisi, God raised up people that literally saved the church and stopped schism. So be that person, right? Be that person. God will work through us. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. But he'll work through us. So what a great time to be a Catholic. Because this is, you know, when saints are made, right? As you and I have discussed many times, it just requires courage. Mm-hmm. And courage mm-hmm. is just having faith. That's right. it. It's just that simple. 
And a little bit of a side tangent, but you're reminding me of the story of St. Catherine Drexel. As St. Catherine Drexel comes from the United States, going to the Pope, imploring him, you know, you know, we need to do this, we need to do that. And he looks at her and it kind of has this response of, well, what are you going to do? You know, it's very easy when things seem in disarray that we go to our leaders, justifiably so, and say, you know, your Holy Father or whoever it might be, the world needs to change. These projects need to be taken up, but we should be asking ourselves that question. What are what am I going to do in these moments such as these? And I appreciate you tie that back into the theme of St. Joseph as we're pondering him here on Wednesday, a day that's traditionally marking and honoring him in the church during the week. And you come back to those corporate works of mercy that you gave the example of your brother-in-law who married your sister, who was a single mom and, you know, had these had these children. And I think of that challenge that we're called to specifically, although not widowed, widowed you know, the example of to care for the widow, to take in the orphan and how that is such a masculine responsibility in our culture today that in many ways has been lost by this culture of lack of responsibility. You know, you just do you, you worry about your responsibilities, don't bother anyone else, just coexist. And that responsibility has really fallen by the wayside. It has. And as you're saying that, it reminds me, uh, one of the toughest human beings I ever knew in my life was was a carpenter. And I got to meet him um, in, in my former life. We, we did printing and mailing and had this massive plant and it was always moving and shaking. Um, and we had to build different things. And uh, I would use uh, local guys, carpenters, whatever, to, to do things. And I met this man. He was very talented. And then he got sick. And I'd known him for eight or, eight or nine years. We knew each other, but really didn't know each other well. And just out of the blue, he says, look, here's the cancer that I have. And he said, I'm dying. He said, I'm not going to be around mm. much longer. And he said, you have a heart. And he goes, listen, would you, he goes, I don't even know what I'm asking you. Would you make sure my wife's okay? Because I've worked my entire mm. life and I don't have anything for her. And I got to know them real well. Um, she actually became the, the godmother of my, uh, my youngest son. Um, she worked in my house for many years. We took care of her right up until, you know, she passed. And I felt just a tremendous responsibility uh, to her based on this man who I, I knew but really didn't know. But that's exactly, Timber, the, the, what I was thinking of, of what Scripture said when he said that. God put me in that place and time in front of him, and that's only happened once in my life. And it was right then and right there. And we could have said, look, I'm, you know, at the time I'm young, we're having three kids, four kids, five kids, or I'm I having don't time know for you. this. <laughs> or, or I knew you, but I really didn't know you, <laughs> right? right? We'd, we'd talk about faith. And honestly, he said to me once in front of my house, um, because, you know, he, uh, I don't remember what the conversation was, but the comment that I remember, I was going coming out to work early. He was there doing something, at the, fixing something at the house, I think, in our basement, which was unfinished. That's what it was. And he was finishing it for us. And, um, you know, he said, well, the whole faith thing, he goes, you know, as long as my kids have something, I don't care what it is. He goes, Christian, atheist, Satanist, I don't care. And I said, Oof. Dick, you don't mean that at all. Right. <laughs> and he looked at me. He's a United States Marine, right? Tough guy. Um, and he goes, yeah, maybe, maybe not. And the beautiful part of when, when he was dying, um, uh, his family was gathered, and he had an absolutely astounding, miraculous conversion um, and told his children and his grandchildren not to be like him to be better than him, that the, to, to embrace faith, that the Lord was real, and he had found Christ at the very end, and he wished he had um, uh, found him earlier, but he was at peace, and he wanted to impass that on to his children. And when his wife told me that, you could I, we weren't there, you know, we weren't part of that family, but you could feel the Holy Spirit literally in the room. I mean, like, I didn't, like, I'm choking up, my wife's crying, and that's, 
that all comes back to that verse you said. If we take Scripture, if we try to live the Scripture and just pay attention, how many times in your life is, is somebody going to ask you to maybe help with their wife if, if, if he dies? It doesn't happen very often. Mm-hmm. But there's other verses in Scripture, too, that, that come to life every day if, number one, we know the Scripture, number one, we have faith, and then we have to listen. Mm-hmm. And I think we just live in a time of just constant, I'm caught up in it, constant distraction. Yes. The Holy Spirit yes. can't work in distraction. He just, he's there, but we're not, right? It's not him. He's always yeah. there, but we're not. And it requires a lot of um, intentionality to pull away from that distraction. And mm. when you say Amen. constant distraction, the distractions can be good. They can be bad. They can just be fluff. But how do we weed through that? And that's why I've done a couple of shows recently with Near Isle. He's the author of the book indistractable. And I appreciate the book because the reason he wrote it is because he realized he was being distracted from some of the most important moments of engagement with his little girl. And so he took this deep dive into the issue of distraction and really creating this resilience when it comes to distractibility. And it's important. It's important. It's interesting. A lot of guests I've had on the show recently, we've talked about How especially for parents today, there's so many distractions that we are bombarded with like never before from the pressing uh, responsibilities of work, the constant notifications of email, the idea that you're supposed to be perpetually on call. It used to be if you were off, you were off and you weren't really accessible. Uh, And so these things that I think are so important that we realize can pull us from our responsibilities day to day, but also from those Uh, good burdens uh, that others might ask us to, such as that request that someone asked, you know, someone you didn't know that well, who said, hey, take care of my wife as, you know, I'm here battling cancer and looking ahead to my death. Uh, Hugh, I really appreciate that model. Can you tie it back to St. Joseph a little bit? Because, you know, here we are in these last days of Advent, working our way toward Christmas. And you gave the example of your brother-in-law in in the light of St. Joseph. For you, especially when it comes to responsibility, how has St. Joseph been that model? So the example I think of with St. Joseph all the time would have been when Herod ordered the uh, slaughter of the innocents, which, you know, still continues to this day. But can, can you imagine the angel telling him right now, you have got to go. I mean, they're literally, the barbarians are at the gate. You've got to go. And you think about the, the, what he was thinking, right? He's worried about his wife. He's worried about the child. He understands this is the son of God, but he also is a human being. And he's realizing immediately these people are coming to kill him, and that, which means they'll probably kill her. And he's simply not going to allow that to happen. So they, they pack up everything, which wasn't much. He puts her on a donkey, and the guy walks, right? He walks from, from what was, you know, um, uh, Israel at the time. He walks, you know, to, to e- Egypt. If you ever look at a map, that's a walk. Right. And he does it. And they do it with basically the clothes on their back whenever they could carry on a donkey that wasn't carrying his wife. And I think about that sacrifice all the time, not just as, as a husband and a father, but also as a business person and as a football coach. He was led to do something and he didn't hesitate and he did it. Um, and I think that example of St. Joseph is just one that's given to us in Scripture. As I tell when people ask me about Scripture all the time, because, you know, Timory, people want to beat us up with like a verse. Um, you can't do that. You have to take the scripture in its totality. And I, I, at the end of the Bible, it says, if we actually wrote down everything that this guy did, meaning Christ, to take up every book in the world, right? So the mm-hmm. few things that we were given, the few things that we were given, you know, all time remembers, right? All history remembers. And that moment from Christ's youth, right? And there's not a whole lot of examples from his youth or St. Joseph 
He's what he's not talked a whole lot about in the Bible, right? And I think that also speaks to his humility, right? Which is men and fathers, that humility has got to be our center because the Holy Spirit works in humility. Pride is death and downfall. And all of us want to be prideful. Well, you can't be, right? You've got to be humble and you've got to be open to the Holy Spirit. And, you know, the Holy Spirit works through fear of the Lord. And that doesn't mean we cower. It means that we respect and love our families, that we serve the Lord first in all things and do everything in our power not to offend him and lead our families in the right way. And then the beauty of Catholicism, when we don't, and we're not, we're going to screw up. We have, we have the, the sacrament of reconciliation. I tell non-Catholics all the time, it's the best thing ever. I mean, you don't know what you're missing. <laughs> you don't know what you're missing. My kids, any of my kids ever ask me, Dad, I need to go to confession. I drop everything. We pull up like, okay, here's the seven churches around us. There's three or close. When do they have it? Let's go. Um, because I think it's important. Um, it's important that, that, that we, again, like St. Joseph would have done for his family, it's important that we put them first and just you know, serve them spiritually because that's, that's the reason we're fathers and husbands. Mm-hmm. Everything else kind of doesn't matter. Right. And that humility, that accountability leads to a greater sense of responsibility and ultimately sacrifice, that loving sacrifice. Sacrifice is what comes from true love. You're listening to Training with Timmer here on Relevant Radio. That's Hugh Brown, the executive vice president of American Life League. You can find him and his great work at all.org. We're going to come back with Hugh Brown talking about the battle that is increasing. It's growing in pro-abortion states and the work they're doing to reach into states that have past very pro-life laws. We'll be back in a moment here on Trending. You're listening to Trending with Timry, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. It's interesting is we're looking at so-called statistics from Planned Parenthood's executives There's a claim that in the area of Illinois that borders Missouri and other states that have outlawed access to abortion, or at least up to a certain extent, that there's been a two to three hundred percent increase in the number of patients seeking out abortion services in Illinois. Uh, Part of the response is that Planned Parenthood for the first time is actually launching a abortion mobile clinic, much like the pro-life protocol, and going to the the states uh, or bordering the states that have decreased access to abortion. They're seeing that more women are coming from out of state to access abortion. We're seeing that Planned Parenthood's reporting in places such as Illinois, uh, that where it used to be four days that you'd have to wait to have an abortion once you contacted the clinic, that people are having to wait two and a half weeks. That's actually very good news. There was a study, a pro-abortion study uh, done over the course of about 10 years. It's called the Turnaway Study. And the Turnaway Study, this woman branched out in research trying to prove that when access to abortion decreases, all this damage is done toward women. But what came out in the turnaway study is that the longer woman had to wait to access abortion, the more times she was told no, uh, the happier she was with the choice to keep her baby, even, uh, even if that was not her initial choice. But the further she got away from that attempted abortion, uh, the further away from that, she, the happier she was with 
becoming and being a mom. And this is in part a pro-life tactic that we use. When you know someone, if you know someone who's pregnant, uh, you want to buy time. Uh, time for the woman to help bond with her baby, to get a little further along in the pregnancy. You want to eat saying things such as, you know, hey, let's check to make sure you're healthy. Let's see what's going on with the baby before you make any decisions. Decisions such as abortion, we know impact women a woman impacts a woman for her lifetime. And so I'm interested to hear about some of the initiatives of American Life League. Joining me now is Hugh Brown, the executive vice president of American Life League. They're on the front lines working against this radical pro-abortion movement and the new expansion of abortion clinics on the road. Hugh, let us know the latest work and what's happening right now. So the example you gave is an insidious example. Um, you know, Planned Parenthood has responded to the Supreme Court putting uh, whether or not abortion is legal or, or illegal or going to be regulated uh, back to the states. So all 50 states essentially have some different interpretation or level of laws, whether it be complete access, some form of restriction, uh, in some cases, some very restrictive um, measures, essentially almost outlawing abortion, which is a good thing. And Planned, Parenthood, Planned Parenthood's response is twofold. Number one, their business model has trended uh, very strongly the last three years towards pill abortions. Mm -hmm. And the pill abortions were something where you had to go to see a doctor. You had to, I'm assuming it was a doctor, right? Someone who's going to kill your child. Um, they had to evaluate you. They had to judge how far along you were and then give you some form of cocktail of pills that murdered your child. Uh, when the virus happened, when the virus happened, Planned Parenthood was already prepared with websites that were launched literally at the same time that the virus happened, which is a very you know strange, odd coincidence, and I don't believe it's a coincidence. That's right. collusion to kill. Um, and the FDA said, oh my gosh, it's a worldwide virus. We waive all of those restric restrictions. You don't have to see doctors in person. You can do uh, something online, whether you're talking to a doctor or not, whether a woman's a month pregnant or six months pregnant, how, how are these people to know? So the pills are flooding into their homes. So mm -hmm. let's say Texas, as an, as an example, has restricted abortion significantly. Uh, well, Planned Parenthood is still flooding that state with abortion pills. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, even if they try to regulate it, uh, there are websites that will send them from over, overseas and there's no regulation. And Planned mm -hmm. Parenthood is connected to those. And the example you gave these uh, abortion death clinics, which uh, on October 3rd was when it first was um, announced or, or reported, rather, that their first mobile abortion clinic is going to be in southern Illinois to circumvent abortion bans that have taken hold in neighboring states. And that's where the number two to 300 percent uh, increase in abortion came uh, in abortion patients came from from Illinois, stating that since Dobbs, if Missouri has any form of restriction, people are simply coming to um, uh, Illinois. And so while some states may be restricting abortions or trying to eliminate them, which is a good thing, people are still traveling to kill their children. So the mm. uh, illusion, or not the illusion, but the understanding or belief rather that abortion is, uh, uh, is somehow maybe on the demise is not true because Planned Parenthood is reporting increased numbers. And they're the number one killer of children in the United States. And they are very aggressive with their lobbying. They're very aggressive with their laws um, that they propose. They're very aggressive in the states. They're very aggressive in suing every single state that has tried mm -hmm. to limit or ban abortion. Right. They have an army at their disposal, and they have the support of the mainstream media. They have so the support of the federal government. They have the support of Hollywood. Um, they have unlimited funding. So again, it takes faith, right? You're literally up against Goliath. So we've got to have faith. God. 
God is on our side. That's the good news. We just have to have the courage and the faith to have these types of conversations because, as you indicated earlier, you weren't aware of some of these things. And why would you be? Because the, the media is not going to report on them, right? The pro-life media, which does try to report on these things, I think can be overwhelmed because there's just so much evil unleashed. It's just right. everywhere. Right. So the two to three hundred percent increase in abortions in Illinois. Now, I still do at, beg the question. I don't believe that that number is what they're claiming it is, because I know girls in crisis pregnancy situations, and a lot of them do not have the means to travel. Now we could also get into the fact that states such as New York, California, and others are paying for women to come into the state to have an abortion, and even paying for almost like this spa vacation abortion experience, and then giving them money when they come back home. But when we hear Planned Parent claiming, "Oh, we're seeing three hundred percent increase in clients," you know, they're fudging those numbers often. And I think you know we see from many of the people who are praying and sidewalk counseling in front of the abortion clinics that it's not always matching up what they are claiming, but it's these numbers that Planned Parenthood uses to rally their base. It is extremely pro-abortion. Yes. Yes, it is. They uh, Listen, the difference between the supporters of abortion and the supporters of pro-life, uh, the supporters of life, uh, we, we are very much a, a people of faith. The other side example, the election recently in Georgia, right? The guy that won the, the Senate is a pastor who is a pro-abortion pastor. Those two, it's a, the, 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 those things are they're, they're antithetical, right? And so the, the zealous nature of people that support death, it's essentially it, it, is, it is child slaughter. It's child sacrifice. So they are empowered you know by principalities. They are empowered, by powers they are and those are very powerful things right those are you know, fallen angels is what they are right above demons they are powerful they are evil but we fear not you know we have Christ on our side we just have to have the faith to battle these things cuz you we've all seen the same things you see these people just doing absolutely just abhorrent things uh, indecent things to 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 assault people or to try to shock people because of their support for abortion. And the ch- and lost in all of this is the fact we're talking about a baby. Mm-hmm. It's lost in all of it. It's lost in all. And you, Timory, can probably relate to that more than most, I would imagine, because you're you know, about to have a baby. So, you know, it is just astonishing to me, lost in all of this, all these bills, all this rhetoric, all this stuff. We're talking about a baby. Mm-hmm. You can't say that, right? We're, we're a bigot if we talk about it. Just That's right. nuts. Right? right. I mean, it's just insane. But that's you've got a great point. The, the other side, they're 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 willing to, as we saw, they're willing to burn cities down. Right. That's what they're willing to do, and then claim freedom of expression. Uh, we well, just have to have me, faith and stand against yeah. it. Got to. Yeah. Well, it makes me even think about what's happening in New Zealand. And New Zealand's recently passed one of the most extreme abortion laws in the world, permitting abortion of babies on demand through all nine months of pregnancy, right, up until birth. And people are talking about it and decrying this is so radically pro-abortion. This is what the law has been for the last 50 years in the United States. This is what it is in a good number of our states here in the United States. But looking at what they're doing in New Zealand, there was recently basically the launch of what's known as Decide, which is a free phone line. You just have to dial four numbers there in New Zealand and you get access to 
abortion, chemical abortion drugs, and you just go and pick it up at your nearest pharmacy for your at-home DIY abortion, which is what the RU486 mifepristomyoprostol chemical abortion is. Uh, It's one of the most extreme types of abortion, so harmful. There are many concerns, whether it be a minor has access to this abortion, there's no aftercare for people, uh, women are being coerced into taking it, uh, women who are victims of sexual abuse, and we're not even diving into the serious uh, risks, health risks. Again, there's no follow-up. And then the fact that it's being unregulated because a woman may perhaps know how far along she is. She receives it, but she might not take it until later. But we know, at least here in the United States, that Planned Parenthood is giving it weeks and weeks after the proper gestational age uh, that has been approved for these chemical abortions. But what's interesting in the whole grand scheme of it, and you know, I'm pointing to New Zealand, but these same exact things are happening across the nation in the United States, the doctor who is heading up and brought together this phone line for chemical abortion, he worked with Mary Stokes International. And we know from the last couple of years that Mary Stokes International that now goes by a different name, MSI Reproductive Choice, so-called choice, in the UK that a report came out from the United Kingdom's Care Quality Commission actually noting that staff was being paid bonuses for persuading women to have abortions. That's the business model. The more abortions that are performed, the higher number of RU-46 chemical abortion pills, whether in New Zealand or here in the United States that are given out, the better people are paid in the abortion industry, uh, the more celebrated they are as workers. And that's sad because like you said, Hugh, we're talking about the intentional destruction, the mutilation of babies and mothers who now have dead children. And that is the battle, right? The battle is that there are people that intentionally have killed their own conscience. They have they have shut themselves off intentionally because they 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 don't they can't dare to think about the fact that you're murdering a human being. You know, we dehumanize babies. We dehumanize people with Down syndrome. We dehumanize people that are crippled. We dehumanize people that are at the end of life. We dehumanize people that maybe have uh, dementia or are are suffering with Alzheimer's. You know, we, we, uh, we are the examples that young people have, you know, whether it be uh, Hollywood or like I've told my, I raised, I am raising, you know, three, three daughters, the, the examples they have on television, right. Which, um, the Kardashians or other people that somehow your physical appearance defines exactly what you are. We live in a lie, right. And the lie is it, to the external self, not internal. And people are, are just committed to death. And the abortion industry is fueled by dollars. It is much more profitable for them to send pills to a woman. The baby dies, She's going to suffer immeasurably during that process. How many people actually die from taking those pills or suffer irreparable consequences? None of that is reported and isn't it convenient, but it's all about dollars. Death has been turned into dollars and cents and babies are slaughtered and that's what this is all about. And they have zealots on their side that don't believe that. It's all about rights, rights, rights. Those people are used. They're tools. They're tools of a machine to feed a monster. Um, and it's it's insidious, and everything we're talking about is important. But to me, we started off with St. Joseph. The most important weapon we have as Catholics is prayer, and from that prayer has got to come forth action. Wherever somebody is listening to this, whatever state you happen to be in, as you mentioned, there are states like California, New York, Vermont. You can kill kids after they're born now. Baby could be, you know, 12 hours old. You can still kill him. It's still legal. 
after birth has no definition. Is it is it a day? Is it three? So what's the why on earth would you think that a human being that's going to slaughter a baby at six weeks, six months, eight months, you know, two days after it's born? What's the difference? There is mm-hmm. none. So mm-hmm. understand what's happening in your state, and then go fight it. Mm-hmm. Right? The Catholic yeah. Church is built on saints that fought things that eventually changed humanity for the better through their faith and the Holy Spirit working through them. That's what we have got to do. Not enough of that happening. And when you see it, celebrate it, acknowledge it, support it, and empower it. Because whether we like it or not, it takes money to fight some of these things. Uh, We'll never have the firepower they have financially, but we don't need it. We've got God. That's Hugh Brown, the Executive Vice President of American Life League. Share with us just a little glimpse of what American Life League is doing to combat these radical pro-abortion initiatives. So our focus for 2023 is going to be on a lot of different fronts, but the one that interests me the most that I think has a lot of um, um, potential to save the most lives is our associate program. Our associate program includes people and organizations that are small, might be two people, might be five people, might be 30 people. Pro-Life Wisconsin comes to mind. That's a group that uh, Judy helped create way back when, underwrite it. Um, Father Frank Favone, we mentioned him briefly, Priest for Life, when uh, Cardinal O'Connor uh, wanted to get Father started. He turned to Judy. Judy helped underwrite that organization for the first few years. Same for Students for Life. We have lots of groups that are out there, associates, that are much smaller than that now. Uh, and one of them, like the Houston Coalition for Life, is somebody that was just introduced to me yesterday. Um, and I'm a big supporter of what they're doing. They have something called the they have the first mobile crisis pregnancy center in Texas. Right, they're calling it the Big Blue Bus. Why blue? Because it's after the Blessed Mother. And we have our Marian Blue Wave here, which is a program, another one of our programs, that asks people to pray specifically for the closure of a Planned Parenthood near you. Well, maybe you don't know where one is. Well, you can go to all.org, go to our program, Marian Blue Wave. It will pull up a map. It might the closest one might be 300 miles. Doesn't matter. Pray for it. Uh, pray for its closure. This um, uh, the coalition for um, the Houston Coalition for Life. This mobile uh, pregnancy, uh, this mobile CPC is a fantastic idea. You know, women that are now being, you know, that are driving long distances to kill their children, this this type of program will save lives. It'll empower people. Just the fact that maybe it's driving 150 miles to go somewhere, maybe somebody driving by it, right? The messaging on the outside of the bus will save lives. And they're making appointments with people. They're going into areas that are uh, most at risk. And, you know, when you talk about abortion, one of the elephants in the room, I mean, you're talking about killing kids. What difference does the color of the kid make? Well, you know what? The the African-American population in America is 14% of the population, but it makes up 38% of all abortions, right? 38% as high as 40. Mm -hmm. It's intentional. That's intentional. Planned Parenthood targets minority neighborhoods. Something like 75 to 80% of their facilities are within, you know, walking distance of, of, of a minority identified neighborhood. And now with these pills, you know, they're, they're even going to target those areas more. So people have just got to wake up and understand what the fight is. Um, and for instance, our, our associate program here, maybe there's somebody listening that has a three-person organization in Tennessee that needs a little bit of help. Reach out to us. The groups we support, I mean, we're, we're, very, you know, we're very committed to who we are, right? We're a no exceptions, no compromise organization. We're committed to the tenets of the Catholic faith, which leads to another program, which is Defending Christ in the Eucharist. You know, we spent 20 years um, supporting Cardinal Burke, supporting other priests, support, you know, Joe Biden should be denied the Eucharist. Nancy Pelosi should be denied the Eucharist. Any, any human being on planet earth that says I'm a Catholic, you cannot support abortion. You should literally, literally be willing to lay your life down to end it. Anything other than that is unacceptable. Mm -hmm. It's not extreme. It's a truth. And the scandal those people are providing 
it is, is, is just astonishing that it's not right. being stood up to. It's so we also pray for courage. It is intentional. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, it's intentional. And if you're listening now, perhaps you have been through an abortion or you know someone who is and praise the Lord. This is why we're listening to Catholic radio. If you're Catholic or you're not Catholic, we open those arms and say, there is hope. There's healing after abortion, no matter what you may have done or experienced. And so hopeafterabortion.com, that's hopeafterabortion.com is a resource for healing after having had an abortion. And if you know someone who has, you know, finding a way to extend that piece of information in some way uh, to someone who's been through an abortion uh, can truly help in bringing back the piece pieces of that person's life, and also helping to prevent future um, subsequential abortions that are most common among people who've already had them. And that's been Hugh Brown here on Trending with Tim Ray. Hugh, thank you for all the work you were doing. To check out Hugh Brown and the work of American Life League and to support their work, just go to all.org. That's all.org. We'll post a link on my social media as well as tag them. Again, all.org. You can follow me at Timmery, T-I-M-M, E-R-I-E to get access to that. You're listening to Trending with Tim Ray here on Relevant Radio. Okay, talk about really kind of interesting trend happening right now. We're in the midst of what is known as the Great Resignation. Many people stepping completely out of the workforce or wanting to change things up when it comes to jobs. But what we've also discussed is that Gen Z in particular, as they're in their, you know, mid-20s, younger 20s, entering into the workforce, don't want to work. They don't want to work. And it seems that some of them have a rather bad work ethic. It's interesting. I was talking to someone recently. I was astounded um, a couple months ago who uh, he was in his kind of first-time job and working full-time, that is, you know, has had a job here or there, but never really had to carry a job um, per se through high school or college. You know, he kind of dallied here and there in a job, but was able to just quit if he didn't really like it. Well, here he is after all the schooling, postgraduate work, and is working a full work week. And it's been fascinating to me talking to him. He was complaining not too long ago. Oh, yeah, you know, I'm working and I just, I'm so tired and I don't have time for anything else. And he's telling me about his working hours. He's working from 10 to 5. It's like, "Mm, you know, not even a full work day (laughs) per se in what we're required. Not saying that, you know, it's great if you have shorter hours. Uh, But then, you know, he's saying, I just don't have time for anything else. And yeah, I'm going to work and I have traffic when I drive to and from, but I'm able to get out of driving in traffic early in the morning because I work later. And at a certain point, you know, I just said, sounds like you have a full-time job now. Welcome to working full time. And, you know, he kind of just looked at me and I said, it is, it just sounds like you're working full time and you're in that season of that new transition. He's like, well, you know, I don't have time to do this like I used to. I said, yep. And I said, well, what time do you work? And he goes, 10 o'clock. I said, so you don't have time to do anything in those hours before you leave for work. It was kind of comical because I said, you know, you could wake up even just at seven and have a couple hours to yourself in the morning or 6.30 or six. And he just looked at me like, what are you talking about? Why would I wake up that early? And what boggled my mind in this whole thing is that there's this trend right now of work is just a disruption to my life. Now, we should not live to work. We should work to live so that we can enjoy our life. But I think that the problem is, is that when we think, I think 
specifically Gen Z, when Gen Z thinks about working, they just think about how it's going to interrupt my life rather than it being a means to do what I'd like in my life, to do, to take on those responsibilities that I have. I want to come back playing a rather funny but also intriguing um, clip from Dr. Phil that was recently sent to me about this Gen Z uh, person who started crying uh, when she found out that she was going to have to get a job. Stay with me because I think it speaks a little bit into one of the challenges with regard to the work attitude and it ties into the issue of parenting as well. I'll be right back here on Trending with Timory. That's Low How Rose Air Blooming, Advent song, as we're in our final days, anticipating the birth and the celebration of our Lord Jesus Christ, reminding you to take that time to slow down and enjoy this Advent season of preparation. If you haven't already, go to confession before welcoming our Lord and celebrating Him this Christmas. It will make this Christmas season all the more fruitful as we enter into it. Okay, I want to play this audio. I was talking about my recent conversation over the last couple months uh, with a friend. He's just entering into the workforce and just my mind being blown as a Gen Z, um, how lazy they are about work. But it reminded me of this clip that my mom recently sent to me. It's from four years ago, a Dr. Phil episode where there's these problems between this mom and this daughter. And the daughter's really got her identity wrapped up around how much she spends and what she has and how she presents herself. And so Dr. Phil is here really counseling and working through this relationship between the mom and the daughter. And part of what comes up is that basically the mom needs to stop spending so much money on her her daughter and give more love and that the daughter needs to get some real work experience and take on the responsibility of working. And so as this is being determined, this is the daughter's reaction to the idea of having to get a job. And this is the stereotypical response of Gen Z and how they are not wanting to enter into or stay in the workforce or work full time. Listen to this. The best thing would be to start with a job. No. Yeah, absolutely. She needs a job. And I think it would be great if you volunteered some more at the soup kitchen. You could do some great volunteer work down there. <laughs> I did that. No. I started with a babysitter. I think my first job was at IHOP. Well, you don't pay me to babysit. She makes me babysit for free. <laughs> she doesn't need a job babysitting. She needs a job in the world. No. She doesn't need Absolutely a job at home. Not. She needs a job Absolutely in the world. Not. You, you need a job. No, I don't want a job. Well, I know. It's so much work. <laughs> but, you know, I'm so tired from work. I don't want to do that. 
<laughs> the last statement she said, I think is significant. I'll come back to it. But she said, they come home so tired from work. I don't want to do that. Referring to her parents. She also at one point says, minimum wage isn't going to be enough to get my car. And he, Dr. Phil ends up talking about all the jobs he had. And yeah, it's going to take longer to get your car that you want. Probably not the car that you want. It, it was so fascinating to listen to this clip as this girl literally has a meltdown. And... But one thing that really stood out to me was, uh, one, you know, we talked earlier here before about just Gen Z not wanting to work, this attitude of, you know, them just seeing it as a total disruption of their life. We should not live to work, but we should work to live so that it can enhance our lives. But she does make an important comment. She looks at her parents and says, they come home so tired from work, I don't want to be like that. And... I think that is significant because I do think it points to something as parents that has occurred, that we give as human beings our best at work and then that time that's supposed to be our best time, you know, that time where we're not working, where we're cultivating life and relationships and religion and culture and our hobbies, we're at our worst. We're most exhausted. We have the least to give and kids are seeing that and they're saying, why would I want to work? I want to have fun. I want to enjoy my relationships. I don't want to give my worst. I want to give my best. But they're missing the fact that the very work that we do is actually something that's a very good to enhance our lives, to take on the responsibility of others. But if work is getting in the way of that loving responsibility, if we're more focused on spending money on our kids rather than giving them love, and I think that Dr. Phil really hits on something this whole conversation with these parents and this daughters, he says, overindulgence is a form of child abuse. It's crippling children. This is why we're seeing a lot of adults now not wanting to work because they were not expected to work. They were very much so indulged in, and yet they lost some of the love that they needed because the exhaustion of parents were working so hard to give the things rather than the responsibility, the love, and the sacrifice that they were trying to give, but maybe missed in the wrong way. So it is, I think, a fascinating conversation and dynamic. And I'm seeing this implosion right now of Gen Z before my eyes who have this very concerning attitude about work and their work ethic and their responsibility. Yet some of it I see on another side is in some ways merited and I think that there's an intervention that can occur to help work through this really difficult transition uh, that many people in the next generation of new workers is going through. You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. I want to just take a few moments here as we approach this Christmas season and as we're wrapping up these final days of Advent to talk about the significance of all of the almost uh, joy and sparkle that can occur around the Christmas season. I literally mean that when I say sparkle. You know, you hit the day after Halloween and all of a sudden Christmas is lit up with all the Christmas lights and you have the Christmas lights, you have the romanticism of the snow and the season and that feeling from, you know, pumpkin spice lattes to peppermint mochas. Uh, all of this that kind of activates and intrigues our senses the idea of giving gifts, of receiving gifts, of the Christmas decorations, and that the culmination of that is in the celebration of Christmas, the Christ Mass, right? Christmas, the celebration, how do we celebrate the Christ child born? And we celebrate him in the Mass. And how all of this is leading up to that Christ child who's a foretaste of heaven. 
and how Christmas itself, all the anticipation and the pomp and circumstance that is so significant and fun and that we have to temper and we talk about tempering in Advent and helping it be that transition into Christmas, that this should be marking for us a foretaste of heaven, keeping our sight on heaven. And I've been reading through the Catechism of the Catholic Church again on heaven, especially if you dive into those paragraphs, paragraphs 1023 through 1029, really short few pages. I highly recommend you read it. If you don't have a catechism, you need one, you can look it up online. Uh, but t- if you haven't bought one, print it, highlight it. But it talks about how heaven is the ultimate end and fulfillment of the deepest human longing, the state of the supreme definitive happiness. That is, heaven is that foretaste of everything that we've been longing for. We know that those who die, the catechism says, in God's grace and friendship are perfectly purified and are perfectly purified, live forever with Christ. That they are like God forever, for they see him as he is face to face. So when we die in a state of grace, We see God face to face. We enter into that beatific vision. See, Ambrose said, for life is to be with Christ. Where Christ is, there is life and there is the kingdom. The catechism goes on to say the mystery of blessed communion with God and all who are in Christ is beyond all understanding and description. I think that's a significant moment because sometimes we go, well, what is heaven? I don't get it. It's a mystery. It's a mystery, the communion that we will share with God with those who have lived in the presence of Christ, who have fought to be purified and to be one with him on earth through the grace of the sacraments. And as the catechism says, it goes beyond all understanding and description. Any description I can make, the catechism could make, that a great sermon can make on heaven itself. But scripture, when it speaks to what heaven is, uses various images such as life and light. Catechism talks about peace, a wedding feast, a wine of the kingdom. We hear about our father's house from Jesus Christ, the heavenly Jerusalem, paradise. We even read in scripture, no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. So all the mystery and the fun and the light and the brightness that comes with Christmas and the celebration from the secular to the religious, is carrying us and ushering us into that foretaste of heaven. The significance of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ being born in that beatific vision, that mystery of full union with God that we're all called to and should set our sights on this Christmas season.